Bordy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. Ollie Mann from the Answer Me This podcast fame, his new The Retrospectors podcast and much more, loves nothing more than researching trivia. Ollie and I talk Wrigley's chewing gum and decapitation on Greyhound buses, leaving your baby outside a bar, people who get erections on public transport, a love for Luton Airport, the misleading American dream, cocktails worth shortening your life for, having a bottom accident on an African roadside. yes there is going to be the S word in this episode, so look away now kids and much more ollie man is on the big travel podcast i do want to start with your new podcast because yes, I, yes, I, sure, I, i'm just course, o- overwhelmed by your um, ability to do a daily podcast i think that's wonderful and it is called the retrospectors and it's it a is. new day in you can history find it now wherever you get your podcast by searching for the retrospectors the retrospectors and I've, I've been listening to it i've been listening to it um I've, uh, I've i love it absolutely love it and um it's about 10 minutes long i've listened to a few episodes i've listened to the one about the origins of the greyhound bus which i thought was very relevant for me and my my travel yes experience. i suppose so yeah i mean I, yeah. i've never actually taken a greyhound bus have you taken a greyhound bus i have yeah once from um, jfk actually out to new york state um and it was uh an experience you know and not probably the experience that they would like us to commemorate <laughs> the one thing i remember about i've got two things that stick out from uh, greyhound buses one is the wrigley's advert you know that they, they're sharing a piece yeah. of wrigley's chewing gum and i think it's got um I think it's free all right now that the song on it. it is, and the yeah. other is that somebody got decapitated on one um, about 10 years ago. Wow. I mean, they're such an enormously widespread form of transport <laughs> that I suppose at some point someone will get decapitated on them anyway. You know, if you, if you have so many buses, it's inevitable. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're used all the time for running drugs across straight, state lines, of course, as well, which, you know, isn't their fault. They're just an efficient way to, uh, you know, with no questions, get some luggage from one yeah. place to another. Um, yeah, I mean, Americans call them the dirty dog, don't they? And they're not, they don't have the best reputation. But it's really interesting because, I mean, it's the kind of subject we cover on the retrospectives all the time. You know, you take a story like that, which is something that everyone is aware of. You know, Greyhound buses are an iconic thing and they're in our popular culture and they're in hip hop and they're in movies. But maybe you haven't realised that they started because some Swedish guy was trying to sell cars and failed and realised the best way to use his stock was to give a lift to miners down the road to their mine on the way into work. And then from that, a whole business sprung up like and not just the business for greyhound but the business essentially of bus travel in america didn't exist when greyhound was conceived so yeah those are the kinds of facts that we love to love to invest in. what's the other one you listen to you said you listen to a couple um yeah i listened to the lady who left her baby outside the which is another travel one sort of yes exactly yeah she left her baby well, is it, was it in new york i think yeah, so that's the story of Annette Sorensen, who was a Danish tourist in New York City. It was a bit more complicated than that because she'd been to New York City as a tourist, I think, a year before and got pregnant. And she'd actually returned not quite as a tourist, but kind of as a mum to present her 14-month-old daughter to the American father. That's why she was there. I mean, obviously quite a stressful situation, I imagine. Then went for a drink with the dad in a barbecue restaurant, had a couple of margaritas and left the baby outside in a stroller on the pavement and as a result of that, spent two days in jail, was accused of child neglect. And she basically argued, well, that's what we do in Denmark. That's what, that's what Scandinavians do. That's the cultural custom. Leave your baby outside in the cold, which is kind of half true. I've seen it. I've seen pictures of people. And I've never seen it in real life, but I've seen pictures of babies sitting outside in the snow, all snugged up in their pram and everything. But yeah. wasn't, didn't she get like quite drunk? Yeah. I mean... I think, you know, if she'd have at first request just said, oh, sorry, and brought the baby in, none of this would have happened, obviously. And it did get a little bit ridiculous because she started suing the state for $20 million. Um, so, you know, you could argue she was keen on the attention. Uh, but nonetheless, she wasn't entirely, like I say, she wasn't entirely wrong. They do do it in Copenhagen, obviously a very city, different city to New York, especially in the 1980s, um, uh, 1990s rather. But they do do that. 
And the argument kind of, I mean, you're a mum, it kind of makes sense to me as a dad. Like if it's freezing cold outside and the baby's asleep, do you want to bring the stroller into a really hot cafe where you then might wake the baby up? You might hit someone and spill their coffee. The baby's then going to wake up and be crying and hot. Then you've got to take all their clothes off. It is kind of easier to just leave it outside to sleep where they're comfortable. Oh, God, absolutely. And having traveled children, I know that your life has changed since you've traveled with children <laughs> as well. I mean, you know, sometimes it's easier just to think, oh, God, I'm just going to stay at home. Uh, yeah, totally. There's so many times I felt like leaving them outside the bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the fact that she was drinking makes the story more complicated. I so mean, it was presented as she went for a barbecue, but she didn't. She went for a cocktail. How do you choose your subjects? Because it's a, it's quite a feat doing a, a, a day in history. And I, I know there's some newspapers that do a day in history do you are you influenced by those or are you actually really doing a lot of intense research yeah so your question has got right to the nub of my anxieties at the moment because, <laughs> uh, i know, tend to do that yeah i mean the dream obviously is that it's all original journalism like what i would love is that we find events i say we because i co-present the show with uh, rebecca messina and Aaron mcnichol who are both journalists in their own right and and really good at finding details and, and obscure results and stuff but when you're launching a podcast like this on a daily basis, you know, all the money, all the attention, all the time has to go into editing the bloody thing, distributing it and everything else, telling people that it exists. And so the actual research of what's in the show, which I would love, I would love that the show generated enough audience and money that that could be my main job. And then I'd spend all day looking into weird assets of trivia. But in truth, of course, sometimes a day comes up and we don't have, we've got basically a giant spreadsheet in answer to your question. So we think of things that are interesting, then we reverse engineer them to find out what date they happened. Um, and then we put them in a giant spreadsheet with 366 days in it. But of course, there are some empty days. And, uh, you know, if there's an empty day, of course, we do end up sort of scouring old copies of On This Day in History by Dan Snow and <laughs> looking on history.com and all that stuff. But I'd say genuinely, the final list of stuff that we end up featuring on the show I'd say probably two thirds of it is stuff that wouldn't normally be covered by an on this day in history type show. And the crucial thing is if it were covered, it wouldn't be covered in quite the way we're doing it, which I like to think is as an entertainment show with slightly tongue in cheek, British sense of humor, obscure adjacent facts related to the main facts. I mean, that's the fun thing. You know, you start investigating the first ever Grammy Awards and before you know it, you're not talking about the first ever Grammy Awards. You're talking about which came first, Chip and Dale, uh, the Rescue Rangers or Alvin and the Chipmunks uh, because Alvin and the Chipmunks won two Grammys that year. <laughs> I used to have an Alvin, Alvin and the Chipmunks album and dance to it. And they used to, back in the day, they don't do it anymore, do they? But I guess because they can't afford it. I could be right in saying this, but they used to um, cover popular songs. Um, yes. Chart songs. And I don't think they do that anymore. And that's the one thing I really miss, actually. If I miss anything from the chipmunks. Uh, there's a, there's a very specific nuts. category, though, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> the, one, the one thing you miss from the oeuvre of the chipmunks, <laughs> as opposed to one thing that you miss that's vital to life. <laughs> I actually listened, used to listen to my chipmunks album at home. I think it was on cassette, you know, doing all sorts. I remember them doing the leader of the pack. That was a particular highlight of them. So, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned cover versions. So, the reason it came up in the Grammy Awards context was the award for Alvin and the chipmunks was for Chris. Christmas, don't be late. Um, and I was curious because I heard the Chip and Dale version, which had come first. It didn't seem like a very Disney thing to do to cover a pop song with chipmunks no. whose copyright pre-existed their rivals. Well, that's what um, they used to do. The chipmunks used to do used to cover all the songs, but I just don't think they do it anymore. I mean, someone will correct me. My, maybe my knowledge of chipmunks is is not is lacking, but I have seen the new ones. I've got kids, you know. I think the reason might be to do with Spotify and music streaming. So, because my kids are really into Thomas, and there are a lot of Thomas albums, and it's all original songs. Some of it quite bad. None of it's covers. So, like if you get the Thomas Halloween album, you know they don't do Thriller. They do Thomas's scary rap song, and I suppose that's because then they get the music publishing rights as well, don't yeah, they? Don't as well know. as the click per play on the artist. So you, the revenues have gone shorter, and and so has the covering. <laughs> I love that you're talking about your kids, though, because sometimes I think there's a tendency. Um, maybe this is a female thing, and and I think this has changed actually. I think the coronavirus has changed this a little bit because we're all working from home, and everyone's got a screaming child in the background. You know, at some mm. point it's become more acceptable. Um, but at some point it it felt like you sh you couldn't really mention that you're a parent because it was a bit boring or a bit dull. And you talk about actually, so I'll get onto my incredible research. So um, your your research is uh, is obviously second to none and very in depth. Um, but when when I I did 
two things really. I, I googled you obviously with mm. Ollie Man travel, Ollie Man holidays, and that's do sort of start thing. with the word Google. You do start with Google. That's a good. Yeah. That's a good first step. Lisa. Yeah, absolutely. I can't think of anything yeah. else that I could use. Um, just, and you know, when you work um, in factual entertainment, you know you like to go a few clicks deeper. That's all. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I do actually. I, I like to, but I, you know, I pretend to. But a quick half an hour of googling—that's that's that's, uh, that's what I do. But uh, my googling has been intense. I, I did Google you, and you were talking about um, your, your travel with your kids and how that tra- that changed. Mm. You know, that's sort of how I uh, came from the, the children conversation to this point. But the other thing I did was speak to Helen. <laughs> ah, okay. Helen Saltzman, of course, your, your partner in crime on, on other previous projects. Yes, and, answer um, this, podcast.com. <laughs> exactly, there you go. Yeah, you're good, you're, you're well-trained. And uh, she told me all sorts of, uh, frankly, some quite intimate travel stories that you might not want sharing. Some of them. No, quite I think I'll be all right with it. Some of them quite right. insulting. I, I think you're going to like them. But one of the first things that came up when I googled Holly Man and travel is a rather glowing reviews of holiday camps, or, or sorry, uh, forest villages, as you called them, and also the question of why is it when I travel on a bus I always get an erection. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was guessing, I was guessing was a, a, a question yes. rather than the, not your. So should we start with? So that would be uh, a question that's not that your got, experience. Well, certainly not on the Greyhound, no. <laughs> I mean, not after a long flight. Maybe that was that's a question how the guy that... got decapitated. You know, <laughs> I don't know. He didn't hand over his chewing gum. He got an erection. Somebody cut his head off. Uh, yeah. No. Why? Why do I get an erection on the bus was a question that was submitted to answer me this in the early days. So we were a question answering podcast on that show. So that's, yes, there are all sorts of weird things come up with my name and, and erection, I imagine. Um, because we do do quite a bit of smart on that show. You recall if the there was thing? a solution to the, uh, to the erection on the bus problem? Uh, I think it was probably just about vibrations. I mean, I think we probably talked quite a bit about, um, you know, the unintended consequences of certain modes of travel. I mean, I suppose some people are kind of kinky about modes of transport aren't they i bet Where simon colder is isn't he i bet simon yeah, exactly. Colder works, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i suppose that's better than the Very mental simon. image i had of pete waterman but only marginally anyway um, why pete waterman loves his trains oh does he oh yes Do not of know course that? Yeah, yeah. yes yeah of course yeah team freak so we're like uh michael portillo he probably gets an erection on a train um yeah other people i mean posh hotels. we're just speculating i'm um, just speculating yeah we don't want to uh, to, uh, to to put that in writing. Um, yeah, Parks yeah, is on. an interesting one because, yeah, um, yeah I, we are going back there in two weeks' time, actually, um, for a weekend break. It's kind of one of the things you can do when you have children, isn't it? To just give yourself just a change of scene. And I've become someone who, I'm not a sporty person, so I never would have instinctively been drawn to a Centre Parks break until I had children. And we probably go back twice a year now. God, that's quite posh, isn't it? I've, do you know what? It, I, this is like I'm a travel professional. I've never been on a Greyhound. I've never been to a centre park. So I always I quite know. like the idea, but I just think I just go abroad. You know, if I get a chance to have a holiday, I'm off out the country. Yeah, but getting kids in a car and driving them 40 minutes up the M1 versus, you know, yes. 20 minutes to the airport and then six hours till you get there is a slightly different kettle of fish, isn't it? Um, Especially so now you're deal. sticking PCR tests in their mouth and yeah. making them gag and stuff up their nose and everything. But it's it's an interesting thing, Centre Parks, because it is kind of like it's Butlins with a Waitrose in it, effectively. Like it is, it's such a class game. It's so interesting how they pitch themselves in the UK. Because I've never been to Butlins and I'm sure it's great. The only reason that I haven't been to Butlins is essentially some sort of ingrained snobbishness. I'm sure I'd really enjoy it. And I'm sure the facilities are pretty competitive. And in fact, you know, the restaurants at Centre Parks, for example, are basically all chain restaurants. Like you have to book six weeks in advance, get a table at the Cafe Rouge. But, you know, there's just the sort of reassuring kind of Swiss feel of, of you're going to some sort of exclusive place with the spa in it. <laughs> that's it. I think it's the it's the it's middle class people. I'm not saying I'm not middle class now because I am, you know, technically. But it's the it's the organization that's involved. And I just don't have those levels of organizations. And this is why the whole coronavirus and obviously there's bigger things at stake but one of the ter- most terrible things about the coronavirus um, is that you have to book restaurants now and bars and that's like that level of organization oh, is, see, is, sort yeah. of, is out of my realm so I'm very impressed with anyone who you know who manages to do that well it's interesting I mean from a travel point of view actually when I'm in a not in centre parks but in a, a city somewhere in the world choosing a restaurant is a real delicate art isn't it there's all kinds of processes going on in your head simultaneously where you're deciding should I go to that one or that one based on like the clientele, like the seating? I guess your holiday experience is different 
to the experience that you apply when you just go for a meal in your local town, isn't it? That's the thing. I'm quite happy to sit in a Pizza Express around here. But when I'm on holiday, it's a real choice. It's like, this is one of my evening's experiences and I want it to be perfect. And you want to see how many people are in there and you want to see how much the drinks are. And, you know, does the service look good? And you go to the places where there are other people. Uh, it's it's kind of weird, actually, like the amount of effort people go to to choose a place when I'm sure they're basically all the same in a lot of tourist places. Do you know what? I absolutely, it's one of my favourite parts of it. And also probably a lot of, it brings me a reasonable level of anxiety because I do want it to be really right. I'm really, I'm really interested in atmosphere in the restaurant. Probably um, food is really important, but I want, I want there to be low lighting. I want them to be, you know, just something cozy about it, whether that, whether, or that might a nice view or something. And I've spent ages like looking through guidebooks and trying to find that perfect place. If you've yeah. only got like three nights somewhere or something. And actually, you know, the one thing about the problem with doing this podcast is it's actually making me physically sick. I'm longing so much to be wandering around some unknown place in the sunshine yeah. and warmth and, well, you know, the things that people look for, though, interestingly, aren't the things locals would appreciate, are they? I mean, I always find that very interesting as well. Like if I'm in, I don't know, a Greek island and I want to go to a taverna somewhere, like for me, for example, the salty smell of the sea working its way up the hill, you know, hitting me in the face as the octopus hangs up to dry. Great. You know, because it just gives you a sense of place. Whereas I imagine the Greeks would be like, why would you want to sit with the smell of the sea <laughs> and all the crap that's in there? You know, and I feel like that in London as well or in Paris. You know, American tourists want to sit where there's a busker playing the accordion because that's evocative of old Europe. And Europeans are like, why would you sit in a place that's evidently there to fleece you with this terrible noise going on? Or Edinburgh, God, with the bagpipers. I mean, literally, I can't bear it. But the Americans absolutely love it. That's what they're there for. It sounds like travel is important to you. Do you enjoy, I mean, obviously, do you enjoy travel? It's like a really base question, but is it important <laughs> to you? Is it something that, you know, it's a big part of your life? Well, it was, yeah, until until COVID. So it does make you think, I want to get back out there again. And we were just saying before you press record that, you know, we're recording this remotely, but we preferred doing podcasts when you used to meet people face to face. And yeah, I've created whole brands so that I can go out there and meet people. I mean, it's a lifestyle business, isn't it? Podcasting. I, I could do other things for money. The Modern Man, which is my magazine show, has a middle feature in it so that I could go and meet interesting people all around the world and interview them. And, you know, as recently as a year and a half ago, I, for example, I mean, this is terrible, you know, carbon offsetting wise, uh, I flew to Vienna to interview um, a Canadian who happened to be, I noticed from her Instagram in Vienna because she had an Austrian boyfriend for a couple of days. And I interviewed her in an airport hotel in Vienna and then turned around and got the easy jet back home again. I didn't even leave the airport. I mean, that's not a story of loving travel, obviously, but it's a story <laughs> oh, of how I do easy, love easy it jet, is you know. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I actually do have a love for, for Luton Airport because they're only about 25 minutes down the road from me. It's uh, often on people's lists of like the most hellish place in the world. But Luton for me is, is uh, where I went to do a lot of interesting work and also where I flew out from for my wedding. I got married in Gibraltar which is not something that everybody knows about me. Well, I do know about it because I found it on Google, but actually it was quite in depth. It was, it was further back in my Google search. It was mm. at least sort of five pages in. Um, you got married in Gibraltar. <laughs> now I know really Gibraltar really well because I grew up in Malaga on the Costa del Sol. Oh, wow. And okay. um, I've been slagging off Gibraltar like in, in the, in, on TV and uh, on radio and for the last few weeks because, of course, it, at the moment, the time we're talking, there's only, it's one of the very few places on the green list in, yes. in uh, Europe to go, Portugal and Gibraltar. So I've been totally, totally slating Gibraltar and now I'm like, I feel really bad because there's lots of nice things about Gibraltar too. And I've been to two weddings there. So tell me why, well, why No, Gibraltar I want to know why you've been slating it. What don't you like about uh, Gibraltar? So basically, I don't love Gibraltar. I'm fascinated by Gibraltar. It's fascinating. Yeah. So what don't you like? What have you been saying is the reason not to go on holiday there? I mean, it's smoggy, of... isn't it? There's lots of cars. Yeah, I've sort it's of said small. on national television and radio that I think it's a dump. And um, and now I'm feeling bad. My parents, who are hiding in the next room as we speak, because they just got here from Spain and they're isolating, they uh, they were like, you can't say that about Gibraltar. I think it's, it is fascinating. It's interesting. But no, I, I, I do really like it. But the, the bad side, it's a bit grubby. It's yes. got a, a cloud. It literally has a cloud hanging over it most it of the days. Yes, yeah, yeah. the, the, the steep rock, which the steep yeah. rock is incredible, by the way, like really incredible. Yeah, and also um, the, 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 the monkey thing. The I monkey mean, that's thing. not something to be discarded. That's just like such an interesting part of it. I mean, Churchill literally said there needs to be monkeys on Gibraltar. <laughs> uh, 
And there were. I mean, you know, they are then maintained and looked after by the people of Gibraltar, partly out of superstition that somehow Gibraltar will cease to be British if the monkeys disappear, but also that it's now become a tourist attraction in and of itself. And again, another great example of something the locals actually hate, the monkeys coming and nicking their food and stuff. They're scary tourists monkeys. Tourists go and see, yeah. Um, I just find the whole place really fascinating. But the reason we were there really was just because of the loophole, just the loophole that it is in Britain. So we wanted to get married, my wife and I, in a small wedding somewhere overseas. Fantasy would be like St. Lucia, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but we had a six-month-old baby at the time, and we wanted to volunteer to pay for some of our guests who couldn't afford the flight to a wedding, and we couldn't have afforded to do that in the Caribbean or similar. Um, and also we wanted to make it affordable for the friends of ours who could afford it, but, you know, wouldn't want to shell out to go there. So, you know, we ended up with a sort of list of short haul destinations and came up actually with, with your gaff, really, Malaga, around there, um, and thinking that would be a nice place to get married, somewhere sort of along that stretch of coast around Marbella to get a sense of kind of that real holiday vibe close to home. And you can fly there from Luton in an hour and a half, whatever it is, two hours. <laughs> um, and then we realised that you can't get married in Spain unless you get married in a church or a synagogue if you're a foreign um, resident. Spanish can obviously have a registry office wedding, but if you're British, you can't have a registry office wedding. And we didn't want a religious wedding of any kind because it would be so tokenistic for us. We didn't believe in it. Um, and then we thought, well, we could have a fake wedding, like where everyone's there and we say I do, but then we have to go off to a registry office in Gibraltar across the border. And then we thought, why don't we just get married in Gibraltar? Because in Gibraltar, you say I do and you are married because it's Britain. Um, and so that's how we ended up in Gibraltar. And then the whole process of getting married there was so quirky and fascinating and unique and such a, like, to be married in Britain, but in a place that so totally doesn't feel like Britain and doesn't feel like Spain either, but feels like its own place with its own climate, its own people, its own culture and its own weirdnesses, was in itself just a memory that, despite the fact we had such a small wedding, only 15, 20 guests or something, just made it really special. Like, that's now a place for us that I'm sure we haven't been since. I'm sure we probably will go for our 10th or our 20th anniversary or whatever, because it's like our place now. So, yeah, I have quite fond memories of it. I mean, the good thing is you can nip over to like some of the best, most beautiful parts in Spain when you're allowed to nip over the border. I have thought about how can you get over the border at the moment? Because you're allowed to fly into Gibraltar without um, quarantining on the way back. You know, could you like sneak over the border in a boat? Yeah. You know, I have thought about all these illegal activities just to get me home to Spain. And anyway, it was good enough for John, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. They got married there, didn't they? Yeah, there's a bunch of celebrities that have been married in Gibraltar, apparently. Uh, Sean Connery, I think, was another one. Um, yeah, I mean, we got married in the Botanical Gardens, which in itself doesn't quite feel like Gibraltar either, like within its own mini part of this mini part of a country that in itself doesn't feel like Spain. <laughs> There's this little park that feels like you're in somewhere tropical suddenly. And it's also a little bit grubby, like beautiful. It is the a plants little bit are beautiful, grubby, yeah. But the, but the, like, obviously it hasn't really been done up since the Victorian age, really, which is charming in itself. Um, so yeah, I, I really loved it. I'm feeling really bad now that I've done nothing but slag off Gibraltar on national TV and radio in the last few weeks. I'm, I'm I should like, say like our, our honeymoon was was then in, um, oh, what's it called? Just down the coast. Madonna's got a song. <laughs> um, uh, San Pedro. Thank you. Last yeah. night, I dreamt of San Pedro, but I don't right. think it's that San Pedro that she was referencing. It is, no, I don't no. think Madonna's been to Marbella. But, <laughs> I bet but she whole... bloody has. Everyone's been to Marbella, but I don't think she was writing about that part of Marbella. No, I don't think she was, no. But every the whole time we were walking around San Pedro, that's what I was thinking in my head. That's why I had to it's remember. A, it's a curious place, isn't it, Marbella? Because, again, I, I grew up there, but um, it's uh, it, it's some parts of it are absolutely beautiful, but then but some parts of it are you know totally trashy. And you know what? I, I love all of that. And that's what I love yeah. about travel. I'm really happy to be found drinking cheap, I was going to say cheap cocktails, but they'd be expensive ones in Marbella, dancing to some, you know, cheesy 80s music on a yeah. bar somewhere and equally happy, you know, going to finding a beautiful backstreet, tiny little tapas bar. And then that coast has everything like that. And that's what I do love about it. Yeah, I mean, I've done a fair bit of kind of, you know, your backpacking style, traveling around kind of places that aren't so globalized. But to be quite honest, when you're on holiday and you only have a limited amount of time, I do see the positives of mass tourism to some of these destinations because, I mean, to make an example that's a bit like Marbella, um, I've never been, but Hawaii, I imagine, is similar. In the sense, there's obviously places there that are completely untouched and are just stunning, incredible nature. 
And then there are other parts that have got McDonald's and Starbucks because it's part of the USA and there's a motorway that works and you, they all speak English. And I do sort of see the appeal of that. Marbella has that feeling of like, you can be in a place that feels really Spanish and then you can get on a motorway that feels like you're in the United States and go to a shopping centre. And in a way, when you've got kids especially, that's quite nice. You can't also dis... Um commercialism well you can just commercialism but it's development isn't it we kind of right. like as as people they, they live in, in the uk and of course other other similar countries we kind of want to go to places that are kind of remote and just have little shacks and tiny well actually the people who live there probably want to have you know the, the mod cons the shopping center yeah. and those sort of they things want a branch of the body shop a, who doesn't want a branch of the body shop or a mcdonald's but uh yeah so it's kind of it, i think it's a really interesting thing about the way that people in in the western world now i don't the western know world that seems that, like yeah, a good that seems yeah. like a reason we we sort of we want those places to remain sort of untouched but actually mm. untouched isn't necessarily good when you're living there in terms of you know it's quite nice to have hot and cold running water and you know good sewer systems and efficient processes like that i guess right and you know i mean especially now we have uh you know ride sharing apps and Airbnb and all that stuff. It's quite nice to have mobile connectivity and have a society where people can use their phones because wherever you are, you know, you can use Google Maps, you can use Uber, you can get yourself out of there. I mean, that's an absolute miracle, isn't it? The first, I actually never really used Uber when I lived in London kind of seven, eight years ago. I was quite happy walking around. I love walking around cities. That's my thing. So even when I lived in London, that was the thing I used to love to do. But then I went to New York on holiday and I was staying in an Airbnb and we'd gone and put our bags down and we didn't know where it was. Literally didn't. All I had was the address. I hadn't really got my bearings and we wanted to go to somewhere glam. So we went to a skyscraper in Brooklyn and had cocktails on the roof of this place, which was cool. And then it's 1am and I'm a bit pissed and I don't know where I am. And I open up Uber, copy paste, and it takes me home. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And you need my credit card from London. I mean, that, you know, you can't. You might want to get away from some of your cultural anchors, but I mean, that sort of stuff is life-changing, isn't it? Yeah, do you know what? I've done, I've done exactly the same thing. When I used to live in London, never used Uber. Went to the first place I used it, it was actually New York. And it was just, it's, I was like, wow, it, it just, you don't have to speak to people. You don't have to tell them where you're going. I mean, I like speaking to people. We don't have to if you don't want to. You don't, you know, like if you're in a different country and you can't speak the language, yes. it, it actually just arrives. It's like technology is amazing like that. Uh, so what would be your cocktail of choice? I was just thinking Ooh. about your cocktail experience. Uh, always. I mean, I don't have to think about this. Well, no, actually, no, okay. I mean, like my well, default like, cocktail, of the one I make myself and the one that I have like twice a week and the one that has probably shortened my life by a certain period of time as a result. Worth it though, <laughs> worth it. But is worth it. It's quite a strong vodka dirty martini. That's my thing. Like with, and like in, in the States where they make them properly dirty, like bit of anchovy, bit of jalapeno, like really go for it. That's my dream. Um, but actually the reason I paused is because, yeah, there are certain circumstances, you know, a, a swim up bar in an all inclusive resort, I will go for a pina colada because oh, when in Rome, yes. you know. Yes, definitely. Um, or a Bloody Mary obviously has its place in the hangover repertoire that's been, yes, less relevant recently. But yeah, those three would be my, my top three. All of those, I'd have all of them. Um, before <laughs> I get together, on to Helen's, well, like, you know, there have been some nights where there, that sounds a little bit, Any, don't chuck a Bloody Mary in or anything with Baileys if you're going to have them all together. I think stick to the, <sighs> to the cleaner spirits. Uh, before I get on to Helen's questions, that the, the mm. are frankly quite shocking and a bit insulting. And, um, no, they're not, they're fine. Uh, you, you mentioned that you have been to places that are, you know, are not your, your commercialised touristy places. Where is Where has been the sort of roughest place you've been uh, I don't mean rough as in bad I mean you know have you really roughed it somewhere did you do like that you did oh I do know actually you did a gap there Helen warned me about that um but has, <laughs> where has been the place where you've, you've sort of been really uh, roughing it more than more than in well, your I don't want to like speak in cliches you know like every middle class kid from northwest London who's been on a gap year to Africa <laughs> but you know, my, my instinctive answer is, where's the roughest place? I, I'd think of somewhere like Malawi, where you know that life expectancy is poor, like over half of the population are young. There's lots of AIDS. There's lots of prostitution. There are lots of people walking around with guns. So in that sense, that flashes to my mind when you say rough. But actually, if you ask me, what do you remember of Malawi? I remember sitting on the banks of Lake Malawi and feeling completely safe and chatting to locals who were really friendly was actually the friendliest place that I went in all of, I mean, I'm going back, I don't know what it's like now, by the way, I'm talking about 1999 here. But, you know, although that's technically sort of the roughest place, actually, I never felt particularly threatened there. And, you know, it seemed to me, and like I was worried about speaking cliches, I'm aware, as I've just said, of all the poverty and all the terrible things that are happening there to those people. On the other hand, I did have that 
cliched gap year student thing of seeing people that actually looked to me like they had a great sense of community and were happy and had natural lives where they really lived in harmony with the nature around them and didn't necessarily want for the things that we all love. Um, so I didn't come away from that thinking, oh God, you know, what a shithole at all. I thought, <laughs> what, a, what a staggeringly beautiful place. Um, whereas, you know, there are places that I've been to in the States, which, you know, on the scale of kind of GDP, you'd say, well, that's, that, that is whatever word you were searching for earlier. That is the developed world. They have everything they need. They have a McDonald's. And yet you go there and you can feel there's like a violence in the air. You don't feel safe walking on the streets. You can feel that there's racial tension between different communities in a way that you just, I, I personally, I mean, maybe this is easy to say as a white person, but I personally feel just doesn't exist in London and the Southeast of England in the same way. There are demarked areas where you're not supposed to go if you're white and or black or whatever. And um, in those areas, you know, walking under an underpass on the way to a Denny's to get dinner at 6 p.m. with some senior citizens eating eggs, I felt more threatened there. I felt like I'm in a much rougher place there, a place that's pretty brutal, actually, where, you know, the American dream is so pervasive and so compelling and I love it. And that's why I've traveled in America so much, but it's not true. You get to those places, you feel actually it's not possible. It wouldn't be possible to come from here and be president. These people have the odds stacked against them and all they have is chain stores and they don't have any health care and they're all scared about guns. And it's actually really depressing. So it, oddly, <laughs> that would probably be my answer. Yeah, no, do you know what? I, I totally agree with all that about the States. You know, you think about like the American dream and if you work hard, you can be whatever you want to be. But that isn't that's not true when you're starting out in, in such a different place. And also, I always say that you can't be what you can't see. You know, if you right. don't see a past that someone from your standing and your community or your background has worked their way up to, for example, president but, or to be a news journalist or to be a lawyer or anything like that then you can't it doesn't even occur to you that that could be you i think that's right i mean of course it does happen but those cases are the exception rather than rule and then they're over propagated because it's the american dream but i think it disguises the reality which again maybe this is easy to say being a white person who's been to private school etc but i think actually in britain you know for all the criticisms of of our class system and um you know the 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 closedness of the establishment, I suspect it's easier in a way here for people from poorer backgrounds, people from ethnic minority backgrounds, even if it means getting into institutions that feel uncomfortable to discuss, grammar schools, private school scholarships, you know, it's probably easier to make your way than it is in the United States. That's my sense of it anyway. Okay, we should coin British privilege because we're better off than, than people in the States. But you're right. I mean, you can't like, keep apologising for being white and middle class and privately educated. Because <laughs> yeah. it's just what, you know, it's just, we, we're dealt the hand we're given. But um, I'm not apologising, but I just think yeah. it's important. I, I am, like everyone, I've just become increasingly aware over the past few years, if we haven't learned anything, we should learn it's necessary to keep contextualising it. Yes, um, you know absolutely um so uh, well that was like we could have just gone into the philosophy of, uh, of <laughs> so many things there but um helen is going to bring the uh, the the conversation down to a more base level uh -huh. um because there she's socks in this list <laughs> yes there are yeah i thought socks. there'd be shitty socks in this because she wasn't with me. That's the only anecdote she's taken with her, is that I, I once shat on my socks. She will take you shitting on your socks to her grave. That's her. She'll be chuckling uh, about that in the afterlife, uh, if there is one. So, yes. Uh, so, we'll start with the first thing on the list. On your gap year in Africa, you told me the nice thing about sitting by the lake in Malawi. Uh, on his gap year in Africa, Helen says he shat on his socks. So, what is the story about shitting on your socks in, uh, in Africa? <laughs> I, to be honest, I mean, it's been 15 years since I told this story as an anecdote. I'm not even sure there really is a story. Just that, you know, like every 18-year-old um, who goes there from Britain, at some point in the two months, you'll get, yeah, some malarial-related bug. And it's just, it's revolting. I mean, you know, there's no um, comparison to any kind of viral dysentery type thing that you've experienced here it's like your anus becomes a floodgate really and uh, it's uncontrollable and you're using some pretty wonky transport systems there you know buses that you have to hitch a ride from the street with people hanging out the back and chickens on board and whatever and you don't get to choose where it stops and um, you, when you need to go you have to go to the side of the road and squat um <laughs> so 
at one point I did that and not being used to squatting, I did manage to shit on my socks. The shit was lurid yellow. Um, I don't remember there being any more of the anecdote than that, but she's <laughs> <laughs> I've got I mean the trouble is because I can just talk to you also because you're a fellow broadcaster we could actually chat for hours but there's so many things I'm thinking about that I'm thinking of times that I know other people have shit themselves abroad and uh, they probably wouldn't wouldn't that's thank me the for telling the story need, yes, when have you exactly. shat yourself abroad that's the I mean because you know the niche of the niche in the spin-off there'll be an audience I mean think of the sponsorship opportunity <laughs> <laughs> Andrex uh, yes Dyrolite uh, all sorts Laundry. of people Laundry yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, I, that, that sort of thing about getting a bad stomach when you go away. I mean, that's what stops me actually from taking very young children to places yeah. like India because you just don't know anyone who's gone there and hasn't, you know, well, if not yeah. shut themselves on their socks, you know, certainly like being in a very uncomfortable position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been to India as well. And that was an incredible trip. My, my best friend is Indian, as in ethnically Indian, but born in Britain. And we went there because he was brought up by his grandparents. And when they died, he wanted to scatter their ashes in the Ganges. Um, and so I accompanied him and it was an incredible trip, but, you know, it had a strange melancholic tinge to it because of the reason we were actually there. Um, but we tried to do some fun stuff as well. And you almost have to budget for it. Like I was there for three weeks. I knew that of that three weeks, four days, I'd have a stomach complaint and I did, you know, but it doesn't ruin the trip, but I think you do have to know it's going to happen. It's sort of unavoidable, isn't it? If you're just, and of course, by the way, it happens to Indians when they come here, doesn't it? Indians come here and they get colds and stuff and they're like, what is this? (laughs) Actually, I didn't know when you were going to say, I thought about the stomach bug. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Of course they get, we kill them off with our random viruses. Mind you, we're all being killed off from a random virus now. So it's all, uh, it's, it's evened out in the end. Well, obviously yeah. not. We're not all in the same boat, but uh, I don't know where I was going with that one. But um, okay, so talking about not where you're going, um, Helen says that you have no sense of direction or, or geography. On Answer Me This, once you didn't know where the Pacific Ocean was, despite having done a road trip up the Pacific Coast Highway in California. <laughs> Yeah, that's possibly true. I think, I, I mean, I do know where the Pacific is now, but do I know where it goes to? So I know that it's in California. What do you mean it goes to? It's not like it's a river or anything. It doesn't <laughs> flow. <laughs> what I mean is when you get down the coast, like is my geography good enough to work out, for example, like does Mexico still have the Pacific or does oh, it go God. to Japan? I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, um, I'm dyspraxic. So that's what that is. Um, so oh, great. Well, thanks for that. So now we're all laughing at your dyspraxia and I feel terrible. <laughs> yeah, this is, the, this is actually the second podcast this has happened on. I went on my mate bought a toaster and Tom Price did exactly the same thing. Said, yeah, I've been in a car with you. You don't know where you're going. And I was like, that's right. That's because I have a clinically diagnosed uh, condition. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah it's, uh, I mean, dyspraxia doesn't get talked about much because it's the less sexy cousin of dyslexia. I mean, dyslexia is sort of in everyone's daily life is more relevant. It affects your ability to do work. It makes you more creative thinker dyspraxia doesn't do any of that it just uh makes you incredibly grateful for google maps that's what it does i mean it's true that i um grew up in in the suburbs of northwest london in stanmore where there are endless roads with roundabouts that all look identical Mm -hmm. and uh for the first four or five years after i learned to drive i had to budget in much like budget in your time in india for stomach complaints i had to budget in an extra 10 minutes every time i drove to my parents house because i get lost <laughs> seriously yeah, they on the way to in. your parents house because yeah, all the roads look exactly the same how far was your parents house away uh this is when i lived in highbury so like in miles terms probably like 10 uh but yeah in journey terms maybe 40 minutes wow that's so interesting yeah. I remember years ago, like pre, um, obviously phones and, and maps and everything. Pre, we I used to travel around London with a little. But I lived in London, and I'd always have a mini A to Z in my pocket. I don't yes. drive. I, I can drive, but I don't drive. Uh, but on the tube, I've always had like a little map, you know, and like to find out where you're going. And I just think it's something quite fascinating about living in your own city, and and because it's so vast, like not really, not really knowing where everything is. Yeah, totally. I mean, I used to carry an A to Z as well, but again, being dyspraxic, one of the things you can't really read maps. So the, the great thing about it was, I mean, I'm crediting Google Maps because obviously that's the pedestrianised version, but really TomTom was the thing that came along. TomTom, yes. Um, it just revolutionised everything for me because I could, in advance, find a postcode. I mean, you couldn't search by the name of the restaurant or hotel like you can now with Google Maps, but put in a postcode and it would just take you there. And I didn't, I could, it, felt me, it made me feel normal because I could think like other people about other stuff. Um, when you're dyspraxic and you're trying to find your way somewhere, it takes up all of your brain or your absent-mindedness means that you just end up in the wrong place. I mean, I've driven, you know, 10 junctions the wrong way around the M25 before I've realised oh that I'm facing the wrong direction. I'm actually in Kent and I need to be in Essex um, because it just doesn't, 
I don't have any sense of direction. I need a huge landmark. It's really helpful in a city if there is an Eiffel Tower or a St. Louis Arch, you know, or a Venetian hotel that I can look up and say, right, there, that's where I'm going. Um, you'll, you'll be looking forward to the, uh, the advent of, uh, of driverless cars then. That scares me. Um, but only because I, I read about this the other day. I'm, I'm apparently part of a generation that's called geriatric millennials. Oh, I'm so glad you're telling me about this because I've seen people tweeting about, oh, I'm a geriatric millennial. I'm yeah. what are you talking about? So tell me, what is geriatric millennial? Well, I haven't, in true geriatric millennial style, <laughs> I didn't feel comfortable engaging in the topic without doing some research, but I haven't read the article. <laughs> but I know that a journalist in the Daily Telegraph has coined the term a couple of days ago and it's sort of gone viral. And it's basically, if you're born when I was, 1981, it's 1981 to 1985, where you're essentially, so you are slightly, Lisa, aren't you, just in the generation before me, I think. Gen X, yeah. Yeah, so Gen late X. 70s, yeah. Mm, yeah. So, so, and the generation obviously above me is millennials, and millennials are at home with, or, or at least assumed to be at home with technology, completely native to it. The point about being born in the particular section of the 80s when I was, is we straddle both worlds of the digital and pre-digital world, we would have been comfortable going into an office environment where you were still using the phone, talking to people, traveling places, writing stuff down with pen and paper. But we were young enough that we could adapt quickly to using stuff like Microsoft Office and Internet Explorer because we were taught it at school when we were kind of adolescents. And of course, millennials don't feel they don't remember. Millennials do not remember a time before computers. Um, and so now we're getting on to the next generation of Gen Z, the, the geriatric millennials are separating out from the rest of the millennials because Gen Z don't remember a time before YouTube. And that really is a totally different world. Um, so yeah, I find all that stuff quite fascinating. I and mean, I suppose remembering TomTom coming in rather than, for example, having to go on the AA route planner and writing in your address and printing it out, that seems like quite a specifically geriatric millennial concern. <laughs> and you think that TomTom must have been a brand name, wasn't it? But it became one of those things that, well, a bit like Google did and, and Hoover and Sellotape and uh, other ones. Because uh, TomTom is a ridiculous name, now I think about it. I feel like, you know, it was, it was actually a really brilliant piece of uh, revolutionary technology. Yeah, I, something I've learned actually from doing the retrospectors is that almost all names sound ridiculous until they become the thing that you know. You know, when you, when, you, when you read about what something was nearly called, you're like, that's obviously a terrible idea. But then, you know, Nike isn't a particularly amazing name, is it? It looks weird on the page. Coca-Cola, you know, what the hell is that about? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I've been thinking about that because I've been agonised <coughs> over launching a production company since, um, since January. I've got about two hours work to do on my website that I've been I'm just paralysed with whatever. I don't know if it's fear or imposter syndrome whatever it is is paralyzing me and the main thing that's paralyzing me is the name as a company and i've thought exactly that it's like nobody's going to give a shit you know what it's called yeah <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of giving yourself a story isn't it once there's a story and you've got something to sell like actually i mean the retrospectors is a name that i did not like to begin oh with. i like um, it i really like it but i would never even think of it, it is what it is now so right know. But it was something like my producer, Matt Hill, came up with and uh, the others of us liked it and we road tested it. We did some focus groups with our friends and that was the one that came back on top. I always thought it just sounded a bit like, a bit amateur, a bit like, hey, let's put on a show, a bit crazy, you know, and I wanted something a bit slicker and cooler than that. Um, that's it. That's in. That's a smacks to me of imposter syndrome. Even though you're you're being, you know, you've you've been really successful for a long time at it now, and I, I think it's something we can we can all relate to. And actually, on on that note, um, Helen said that when you were on holiday as a child in the hotel pool, you used to swim around hosting your own chat shows in your mind. So it's clear. It's clear I mean, that you've been true, doing this a long time. I don't remember ever telling her that. <laughs> Maybe you didn't. Maybe you just spent so long together that she just sort of, you know, managed to delete ships from your mind. Yeah, that's true. Well, I was an only child, so um, was I good at making friends? I guess I was actually, but I was also quite odd. I mean, I don't think I was odd. I, like, I went to university and met other kids like me, and then I didn't feel odd. But my interests were odd generally for a boy. I mean, I, 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 I liked musical theatre. I didn't like football. <laughs> That so just makes it harder to have a conversation about certain things. And I always knew that I wanted to work in the media in some way. And yeah, anyway, so if I didn't make friends on holiday, then what I'd do is just swim around the pool by myself for hours at a time and then sort of get lost in my own world. And one of those worlds was me hosting a TV chat show, actually. To be fair, I hadn't nailed it down to podcasting, which didn't exist then. <laughs> I'd pretend I was Jonathan Ross. Oh, and have you met Jonathan Ross? 
I have, although he won't remember ever meeting me because I was 10. Oh, you mean like just in case I was going to ring him up and check? Because <laughs> <to, laughs> I do like, you know, to tick these boxes, like how's, yeah, just ring him up and check to verify your, your story. Oh, well, there goes that plum. You know, we've been speaking for quite a while now and I could, I could tick to you forever, but obviously we've got to wrap it up at some point. So are there any... Um, are there any burning travel stories? I'm just the burning's just making me thinking about you shitting yourself again by the side <laughs> of the road. Um, are there any burning travel stories you'd like to tell me? It's funny, like you know, as soon as you start talking about a destination, one thought leads to another, doesn't it? But if you're not a professional travel journalist, which I'm not, travel is something that can be quite incidental, but it's something that's so crucial to the way you experience the event. Um, so, for example, one of the other things that I do is I present a show for Radio 4 called Forethought, which pre-COVID was, was kind of like TED Talks that the BBC does, and we'd go around festivals doing it. And the point of going to the festivals is really a sort of Radio 4 promotional thing. They want people who are at music festivals who maybe aren't Radio 4 listeners to encounter Radio 4. That's why we do it. It certainly doesn't sound good on the radio. <laughs> You're in like a fucking windy tent with the sound of people banging on drums outside. Um, but, you know, that's that's the format and I do it. And, um, you know, I, so what I'm saying is I don't choose necessarily to go to those festivals. And in a strange way, actually recording that show remotely has been a bit of a relief doing it from home because I haven't had to travel all over the country just to, you know, be on Radio 4 for 30 seconds of time. But, some of the places I've been to record that show, because they pick, you know, slightly left field music festivals. Like the most mainstream one we went to was Green Man in Wales, but we've been to festivals in kind of rural parts of Scotland and bookshops in former branches of Iceland in Coventry and stuff like that. It's just being somewhere different. Just, I love challenging myself. That's the thing that I like about doing live radio, I think because it's very kind of you to say I've been successful in podcasting, but like the itch that I always want to scratch is live stuff because of the adrenaline of it uh, and the challenge of it. You have one opportunity, don't screw it up. And I kind of feel like, you know, going to do your work in a different place is in itself a kind of challenge, which I just really enjoy. I really enjoy, bizarrely, I mean, I'm obviously a bit of a masochist. I really enjoy it when I'm on stage hosting Forethought and something I say goes down badly with the crowd. <laughs> Because I'm technically there to warm them up. But if I say something about the place they live and it goes down, I'm like, that's really interesting that this thing is locally, culturally sensitive that I hadn't appreciated. It's not like I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm just trying to be amicable and warm. You know, I'm not saying anything that I thought was particularly controversial. And then trying to get out of that situation is in itself a challenge, which I enjoy. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so when you ask me, are there any travel experiences? It's like hard to pick an experience, but like the general vibe of I'm in this place because I need to do a thing tomorrow morning and I've got six hours ahead of me. And I don't need to sit at my computer to do this work. I can go and sit next to that canal. I can go to this pub and taste some local sausage. I love that. And also, if I'm being really honest, I'm someone who has never really had a period of depression or any issues with mental health. But the closest I get is when I'm by myself in a place for work. And I'm like, I'm not sharing this with anyone. This is, there's something sad about it, which I quite like leaning into occasionally, selectively. Like just having to have my own company and fend for myself in a place I don't know can make you feel a bit odd. And ultimately, I really like that, you know. Well, I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music because I believe that music and travel very much go hand in hand. If I had to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and moment of travel. What is that song and uh, what does it remind you of? It's Yes Sir I Can Boogie by Baccarat. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and it is from my gap year. I did one of these sort of overland truck, you know, tours because me and my mate Che, who went out to, so we did Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Zanzibar and Malawi. It was an incredible trip. We were there for two months but we were kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say like slumming it. We were in tents, you know, it wasn't like we were staying even in hotels. And, you know, there were a few dodgy situations whilst we were there and we were only 18 and we were from the home counties and we felt like we needed the crutch of being with some kind of organized itinerary. So we found a really inexpensive, I mean, the whole thing cost a thousand pounds or something for two months, but it was like at least a kind of 
London-based company that had organized a truck that took us from place to place and gave us an itinerary of campsites, which really helped. I mean, having a guy who has a gun on the back of the truck is really helpful. <laughs> I, I usually feel, try and travel with one wherever I yeah, go. Yeah, she's making you feel a little bit more secure about what you're doing. It's back to the and, Greyhound, isn't it? Except the guy with the gun is not paid to be with you. He's just exactly. standing there, yeah. ready to decapitate you or hand you a chewing gum. One of the two. <laughs> there was a cassette player on board and we were in this ruckety old truck thing with like two uh, benches facing each other. And most of the people on the truck were from the UK as well. About half of them were sort of gap year students like us. Some of them were people that were in their sort of late 20s. I think the oldest was probably about 35 and had just taken a year out of their life, which at the time I just took at face value, like, oh, they want to break from work. But now I realised was probably some massive mental crisis they were going through, <laughs> trying to resolve by seeing waterfalls. Um, Not everyone who travels is mentally ill. I just thought I'd pop that in there. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. But, uh, a well-known quote. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, a couple of specific people. Anyway, so there was a shared cassette player and everyone brought a cassette because it was 1999, of whatever they wanted to. And um, I, just before I left, had bought like in a petrol station or something, um, a copy of, do you remember when The Full Monty was like a massive film? So huge, people forget this, that it had merchandise in the shops, kind of like like Little Britain or The Simpsons or whatever, like it was that big. So there was a spin-off CD from the soundtrack, the soundtrack being the biggest selling soundtrack of the year. And so you could buy on cassette a compilation called More Monty, which were songs that weren't even in the film, but were a bit like the songs that were in the film. Uh, so sort of 70s disco tracks, basically. And being 18, I'd never heard Yes Sir, I Can Boogie by Baccarat. It wasn't a thing when I was growing up. And that was one of the songs on More Monty. And of course, it's an absolute banger. So if you play that to like a bunch of 18 to 25-year-olds on an overland track in Africa, it sticks out. And so that was my contribution, that and a dubbed version of Secret Smile by Semisonic. Uh, to the musical taste of the group. And it became the kind of anthem of our little posse of people traveling around Kenya and Tanzania to the extent that when everyone was a bit hungover and grubby and we were taking tents down in the morning and putting them on the truck and going on to the next place and feeling a bit like we might have shitty socks, I'd play Yes Sir, I Can Boogie by Baccarat. And I even wrote out the words onto like cue cards so that everyone could sing along. So, I mean, I can't hear that now without thinking about driving through some really amazing scenery and going to some incredible places around there. So, uh, yeah, that would be it. How I wish I could play it. I can hear it coming in now, though. Can you hear it in your head? Absolutely. Your <laughs> eyes are full of hesitation. It makes me wonder if you know. I know. I still know the lyrics. I mean, it's just a Also, the lyrics on the second verse, where she says something like, already told you in the first verse. It's brilliant, like bringing down of the fourth wall in a disco track. <laughs> so good. Um, anyway, yeah. Always have time. I, I have to admit, I've never, I've never, I'm off now to Google the lyrics to Yes Sir, I Can Boogie, because I it's, only know the main bit. It's great. Strongly recommend. Thank you so much, Ollie. That was witty and entertaining as always. We look forward to hearing much more from the retrospectors. Thank you for listening. I'm Lisa Francescanand, and I will be back with more episodes of the Big Travel Podcast very soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.